Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. To be quite frank, I didn't want to be making this episode at this time. However, everything that's happened with Black Lives Matter has just escalated the point of one of the key things that I was going to be talking about in one of the series that I already planned out, my series on political fundamentals, where I talk about various political forces that drive our current state of politics. One of those episodes was on political movements, how they end up succeeding, and how they may fall off the cliff. And unfortunately, I can see this happening possibly faster than it ever has before with Black Lives Matter. So I'm going to launch this podcast right now, a little bit ahead of time, and try to do my best in order to demystify Black Lives Matter, to bring actual solutions to the table, and to honestly represent what the people on the ground are fighting for. Without further ado, let's get started. So for those of you who haven't heard of Black Lives Matter, it's a protest movement against police brutality that was started in 2014 after the deaths of several unarmed black men. It also expanded to encompass broader protests against racism in many forms, and in the modern era it was reignited after the killing of George Floyd, where a police officer kneeled on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, a clear case of police brutality. Now, there are many policy solutions to the aforementioned issue of police brutality, which have been discussed, and in my opinion, have been discussed fairly honestly by some people, and have been broadly misrepresented by others. The important thing to keep in mind here is that Black Lives Matter is not a top-down movement. It does not have a single leader, it does not have a leadership structure, or anything like that. Anyone who claims that there is a single Black Lives Matter leader who is, say, an identitarian, or an anarchist, or other form of violent extremist, that person is misrepresenting what Black Lives Matter is, and is misrepresenting the millions of protesters that are actually on the ground. I encourage you, obviously, social distance and wear a mask, but actually show up and ask some of these protesters, ask the regular normal people on the ground what they believe about Black Lives Matter, and you'll get a very honest answer that solves the actual problems that are at hand. They're regular people, like you and me, people who want to fight for their friends, for their family, for their children, and for their descendants in the far future. One of the best policy websites for these actionable items that actually solve the problems that they're addressing is Campaign Zero. I'm going to read over some of the policies in brief, but if you want to learn more, go to joincampaignzero.org. So number one, end broken windows policing. So broken windows policing is a method of policing that generally focuses, and many argue over punishes, lower levels of crime, such as broken windows, in order to reduce the amount of organized crime or more violent crime that comes out of it later. However, this tends to overpunish and have negative impacts on a lot of minority communities, including African American communities. Number two, community oversight, having a direct line of accountability to people in the community, having elected leaders that can actually reprimand police officers who step over the line. Number three, limit use of force, banning some controversial techniques such as chokeholds, which there are alternatives for. Obviously, you do have to train police officers to use those alternatives, but if you have those less dangerous techniques available, then you can probably do away with chokeholds that would otherwise possibly cause harm to suspects. Number four, independently investigate and prosecute. So essentially in the United States, police officers are investigated by attorneys that would normally work together with them in order to make cases, so there's a conflict of interest here. But having people who don't work with those police officers come from out of state 
or out of the community to come in and investigate, you can have a more objective result. Number five, community representation. Essentially, having police officers from the local community will result in more de-escalation as the people who actually live in those communities will more likely have bonds with those people, understand what they're going through, and be able to resolve things without the use of force. Number six, body cameras. There are already body cameras in many police departments, but this is just a law that would make it mandatory for them to be on whenever a police is on duty. Number seven, police training. So there are many forms of training that can be implemented in police departments that make up for some of the skills that they're lacking, including de-escalation training, mental health training, implicit bias training, etc. Number eight, and for-profit policing. Obviously, when you have incentives that aren't aligned, when you have for-profit policing, then you're not going to be directly trying to keep the community safe. You're going to be over-punishing people, etc. Number nine, demilitarization. When you have contracts with the military that allow you to use equipment that's designed to be used in a war zone, that's going to be incredibly threatening to your own civilians and will not create trust between police and the people that they're trying to serve and will make it much more threatening for those normal people. Number 10, fair police union contracts. So this is actually a very big problem as there's a lot of double dealing that actually goes on with police unions. They do a lot of organizing and are an important part of the electorate for a lot of local officials, such as mayors, who then go and negotiate contracts with those police unions. You can see that it's a clear-cut case of corruption, and right now, what's being demanded is that we put more pressure on the governments to actually negotiate those union contracts with the citizens and communities in mind, instead of trying to cater to the police unions. However, I'm actually taking something that's my opinion and not in Campaign Zero right now, but one of the best solutions for this would be to appoint an independent negotiator in the same way that someone might appoint, say, a Supreme Court justice, where you have someone who has a lifetime appointment, who doesn't feel the responsibility to win re-election, and has the mandate to negotiate for the best circumstances for the communities that are being policed, instead of having that temptation to double deal with the unions in order to get more votes for their re-election. Obviously, the solution might still have problems, and you will have to continue putting pressure on the government to appoint people who are going to be fighting for the local communities, who are going to make hardline negotiations with those police unions in order to get contracts that actually punish them for misconduct and allow for them to be arrested if they commit crimes. Next, we're going to be talking about a policy that is more controversial, but mainly just because of branding issues than because of anything else. The policy, of course, that I'm talking about is diverting funds from the police. Often branded as defund the police or abolish the police, those are complete misrepresentations. So the idea behind diverting funding from the police, which is what most people on the ground are calling for once again, is that the budget is a zero-sum game. A dollar that's going into policing means a dollar that's not going into education or some other social service. So in the same way that we would talk about cutting other programs in order to make way for new programs, you might cut some portion of the police budget. This might mean that there's less police officers just walking around and forcing like local bylaws, giving speeding tickets, etc. But it might mean that you're able to build a new school, for example, and that's a trade-off that every community has to consider. Another case to be made for diverting some funding from the police is the fact that there's a lot of police response that's not actually best suited to them. This includes mental health breakdowns, some cases of drug offenders who are not necessarily violent, speeding tickets, and community policing, as I mentioned before, just walking around helping people who might need assistance. A lot of these jobs don't require someone threatening, someone with authority, with a badge and a gun. 
especially since a lot of police officers have that panic mode when they go into confrontations for the single reason that they have a gun that can be pulled off and used against them. If we remove that threatening factor, if we remove the gun and the badge, if we have someone who's just going in, who maybe has a lot more training in social work or is a psychiatrist, then you're going to have better outcomes, you're going to have more de-escalation because those people are trained not to use violence. And you can see that this can be implemented in a lot of cases where police are called in mental health situations, for example. In Canada, there were two cases very recently that were very high profile. Regis Korczynski-Paquette, who was a 29-year-old woman, African-Canadian woman, who fell from her balcony after police were called to take her to a mental health center, essentially. And Ijaz Chowdhury, who was schizophrenic, who had a knife, but was shot by police who actually refused the help of the family to try to de-escalate. Obviously, in this case, you might want a combination to be at backup if the psychologist or the therapist weren't successful with de-escalating, or in the case of Regis Korczynski Paquette, maybe you would just want a single community responder or a team of community responders, once again, who are unarmed, who aren't going to use force, and who aren't as threatening. If you have a separate department to handle those cases, then obviously you would take the money and just move them to a new department, say a community response department, etc. And once again, this is a very practical, actionable solution. It does not lead to anarchy, as many attackers try to claim, and it is something that would benefit the lives of ordinary people. Finally, there is a possibility that police departments may simply be too corrupt to reform from the inside out. This was the case in Camden, New Jersey, where they completely abolished the city police, but replaced them with county police, restructuring the police force in order to build a better system and to renegotiate contracts, as we said was an important priority before. It's just a simple system in order to reform police by reconstructing it. Now, for those of you who may not have followed the news recently, you might be wondering why I keep mentioning anarchy and why I keep mentioning the strawmanning that goes on with this policy. I'll talk more about the media dynamics at play later on, but right now there are 0.01% cases of people who are participating in protests who might end up being violent, who might end up being identitarians, who end up trying to take armed takeovers such as in an area in Capitol Hill in Seattle, Washington. But it's incredibly important to remember that these extremists, once again, represent a minuscule amount of the people who are actually on the ground. The vast number of people, there are millions on the street, are demonstrating peacefully and are calling for some of the proposals that I already talked about and other proposals that, once again, directly target the problems that can be put into law that you can read over and understand for yourself as something that would actually accomplish the goals. Now, we have to be very careful once again with the word extremism, as it's often misused. A lot of media tries to use this tactic, or this idea called the Overton Window, where they become the designator of what's acceptable and what's not. When I say that something is reasonable, I mainly point to three factors. Number one, that is something that the government actually has control over, that doesn't violate the constitution, that can be put into law. Number two, that it actually targets the problem, that there is some amount of evidence or some direct pathway between implementing that policy and changing the factor that you're trying to change. Finally, number three, that the policy does not have adverse consequences that harshly outweigh the positives, 
and this is a very important factor as many politicians fail to even think one step ahead. This means that something like having a community response division is something that goes after the actual problems at hand, the fact that police are not equipped or meant to deal with a lot of mental health situations and a lot of other non-violent situations would actually address the problem as you would have a separate department to deal with those response cases. And finally, would not have significant drawbacks. Obviously, you would have to invest more money and the money invested could very well be worth it. When I talk about something being extremist, I don't actually mean something that hasn't been mentioned in the media, like community responders. I mean something that does not follow the three things that I talked about, that creates extreme adverse damage, or that completely misses the point. With that in mind, we can move on. Next, we're going to be talking about racism. And racism obviously has become a discussion fraught with landmines in the modern era. However, I'm going to try to break it down in the most simple way possible. You might not agree with everything I say here, but what I'm trying to do is to draw the border lines to find out where people disagree, to set up those lines of discussion in a way that is not overall harmful to the country and not overall harmful to the African American community. In my explanation, I'm going to use three different types of racism that sort of define the boundaries of what people consider to be racism and what should be done about it. So number one is overt racism. Almost everyone agrees that this is racism. It includes hate crimes, explicitly discriminatory policies, etc., such as segregation and Jim Crow, slavery, the KKK, all of these are examples of overt racism. And it's almost unanimously agreed that people who commit these acts are bad. This is often what's most explicitly meant by the word racist. Calling someone a racist typically means that they are committing overt racism. There are other forms of racism that need to be addressed, however, keep that term in mind so that we can discuss it later. The second type of racism is implicit racism or subconscious racism. This includes profiling such as with stop and frisk, as well as some hiring practices, etc. Essentially, these stem from an implicit association or a stereotype of an African American with some other negative trait. This is something that should not be done, but the biggest problem about it is that it's often not noticed. This does not mean that every single person is subconsciously racist. However, it does mean that this can happen, particularly in police departments, particularly in some other types of situations where you are trying to find a profile of someone, whether you're trying to determine whether that person is suspicious or whether that's someone you want to hire. Most importantly, this is ongoing to this day. It's important to note that, particularly in the hiring example, implicit racism can generally be dealt with by completely removing race as a factor. For example, removing any identifier of a person's race. This includes obfuscating their name, address, any other sort of indication of what race they are when given that application to whoever is selecting the resumes. If this is done, there is no factor of race, there is no indicator whatsoever, and there will be no subconscious racism applied. This does not mean outcomes will always be equal, as there is a third type of racism that we need to talk about. However, this is the solution that we need to adopt in order to remove this type of racism, particularly in the long term. An important thing to talk about when discussing implicit racism and subconscious racism 
is not to resort to adversarial politics. We already talked about calling people racist when they're committing overt racism. If someone is calling for slavery, for example, or calling for other some sort of hate crime, then it is a situation where you would deem them racist. Could you argue that someone who is implicit racism, such as a police officer that may be profiling someone, for example, could you argue that that person is racist? Yes, you can argue that, especially if there is significant evidence involved. However, is it constructive? No, it is not. The problem of implicit racism is not one of people trying to harm the African American community. Now, this draws on a fundamental point of politics that I'm going to expand on later. For now, let's define two terms. The first is adversarial politics, politics that pits one group of people against the other. Of course, this is most famously used in fascist rhetoric, including that of Nazi Germany. However, it's also a tactic that's almost universally used in political campaigning, particularly in the modern day. While it may not be as racially driven or as violent and harmful, it is a political tactic that remains powerful and does sway the hearts of people. The second is constructive politics. Constructive politics is a type of politics that aims to incorporate more people into an idea to build a greater increase in public opinion in order to create solutions that work for people as a whole. This can also be thought as quote-unquote big tent politics, where you're trying to include as many people into your political movement or party as possible. Now I'm going to be honest here, I'm almost completely in favor of constructive politics. Many would argue that adversarial politics is an important political tool in getting things done. That is a disagreement that can be had. However, especially in this case of racial tensions, it's incredibly important that we approach it with a constructive mindset, not an adversarial mindset. If someone is recovering from a drug addiction, if someone is recovering from mental illness, you're not going to call them crazy, you're not going to call them an alcoholic, you're going to give them a path to recovery. You're going to tell them, look, what you did was wrong, you can do better. And that's exactly how we should be approaching this problem. We should be highlighting cases of implicit racism, and you should be winning more people to the side of acknowledgement by actually having meaningful conversations about this instead of immediately denouncing people. That's the main failure of the so-called cancel culture. Of course there is nuance to be had here, I think that's something that's an explicit racial stereotype like Aunt Jemima, that's fine to go. However, attacking individuals for committing acts of implicit racism or of stereotyping, which is problematic, but once again falls into implicit racism, doing racism without understanding that it's racism more than it does to anything else. In order for people to heal, in order for them to come to understand their decisions, there must be room for them to join your side. Adversarial politics does not work in changing people who might be sick, who might have made mistakes, and who want to be better themselves. More on this later, but next let's talk about the third type of racism. It's the unfortunate truth, particularly in the United States, that even if we erased all factors of race temporarily, we made everyone completely unable to differentiate between skin colors for the next, say, 50 years, that after those 50 years, the people who we see now as African American would still be disadvantaged. Why is this? This is a combination of two factors. The first of which 
are these acts of overt racism that have happened in the past. This includes Jim Crow, includes slavery, and includes other forms of discrimination that have left African Americans, particularly African Americans as a community, to be in very poor circumstances economically. It is an unfortunate truth in the United States that wealth does still pass through generations. It does not pass through completely. There is a factor of individual decisions. Many people try to pit this as an argument between whether someone's individual choice determines their place in life or whether their circumstances of birth do. However, the unsurprising answer is that both of these factors play a part. Consider the following analogy. A person is training to walk across a balance beam. This balance beam is, say, 50 meters across, or 150 feet, and you have to walk from one end of the balance beam to the other without falling off a single time. Obviously, with enough training, with enough ability and understanding, you can walk across this balance beam. However, let's say that there is a second balance beam. This one is 10 meters 30 feet across, and you're given three tries. The first three times you fall off, you're back on the balance beam wherever you fell off, and you're allowed to keep going. No one in their right mind would argue that crossing these two balance beams are equally as difficult. Obviously, the second balance beam is easier. While it is always possible to cross both balance beams by not making a single mistake, there is going to be a variety in what happens to people, there are going to be varieties in personal decision making, and even if you make perfect decisions, you might have something like the current coronavirus pandemic that throws all of that out of the window. If you have existing wealth and connections due to your circumstances of birth, it acts like a cushion and it acts like an accelerated path to the goal that you're trying to achieve. This means that someone of the same decision making, who makes the exact same decisions whether they be good or whether they be bad, would have an easier time if born into a circumstance with more wealth. That's why the disparities caused by acts of racism in the past do continue to impact outcomes even in areas where there is no explicit racism, where there's no racism of the first two types. This is the case in universities, as many university qualifiers, such as school performance and SATs, tend to correlate with wealth. They do not 100% correlate, it is still possible to achieve a high GPA or a high SAT score if you're someone who is not directly born into a family of wealth. However, once again, the way you make an argument is incredibly important here. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be expressing their anger, that they shouldn't be veritably frustrated with the circumstances of their life that they may have been put in. However, using adversarial politics is simply not constructive. Take the argument I mentioned before about addressing people who may have made mistakes in the past and who may have implicit racism. Now apply these changes to people who have done nothing except inherit things from their parents, or even to people who have done nothing except immigrate to a country where you were not initially disadvantaged. Now, adversarial politics suggests that you attack these people because they were quote-unquote complicit in the system, because they did not suffer the direct disadvantages that the first two forms of racism afflicts, that they are somehow guilty. This is simply not a way to change public opinion and to actually help people accomplish remedies to these problems. Once again, think of another analogy. Let's say my house burned down. If I go up to my neighbor and say, I don't have enough life savings to pay for this, my house just burned down, my family's in a terrible situation. The odds are 
that they're willing to contribute, that they're willing to do something in order to help my situation, in order to help fix my very real problems. Now, let's say I go up to my neighbor, knock on his door and say, you're a terrible person if you don't give me money right now because my house burned down. This is why, when we're addressing this problem of racism done in the past, impacting people in the present, it's important to build upon the constructive nature of people, important to gather people together to gain an understanding of the problems without resorting to polarization. This system of constructive politics would suggest that we should do things to actually attack those continuities. For example, increasing taxes on inheritance and transferring that money to the people who are more disadvantaged, including disproportionately minority communities, and most importantly, changing the de facto segregation of schools based on income. Right now in the United States, property taxes of local communities are used to fund the schools in those areas. This means that in a wealthy neighborhood, the wealth goes back towards their own schools, towards their own wealthy children who already have the benefits of, say, private tutoring or something else that those wealthy parents would be able to provide. This means that while there is a universal school system, the school system is still separated by income. The children of wealthier parents still have more of that wealth flow through them, even though it's taken by taxes. There's an incredibly straightforward solution to this. There's a very simple solution to this, straightforward, attacks the problem head on, and creates veritable results. And that's to end the localization of property taxes. This means that the property taxes collected are given evenly to all schools, as they should be. As schools are a public institution, they are funded by taxes, and as such that tax money should be redistributed to not advantage already wealthy people. Many people tend to fight back on any sort of redistribution as something that is socialist or something that is a government takeover, and let's stop with that argument for this specific issue. There already is government-funded public education. It's happening every day. The simple fact is the government takes that money and then uses it to reinforce the very same problems that continuities create. There already is government control over public education. The only fix that we're doing here is to change the inherent corruption that the system allows. This is the number one solution for actually making a difference in addressing these issues of continuity racism. Other solutions where the pros and cons can be weighed, including Medicare for all, universal basic income, or a public option, some other form of guaranteed health services or guaranteed income that would allow capitalism to take place with people being more willing to risk something in order to have more capital to leverage in their decision making. Obviously, you have to balance this with the impact of taxes, but this is something that will go a long way in addressing this continuity, in addressing the fact that wealth passes through generations. The strawmanning of social democracy is an issue on its own right that I'm not going to go on today, but please, but please just suspend your inherent assumptions about redistribution for today, and at least address that this would be the best way to solve for part 3 racism. You may not agree with the economic consequences that it might have, but it is a solution that can be talked about. With all this in mind, there is a clear question for you to ask yourself now. Why are these issues, why are these solutions, not the ones being talked about? In fact, let's break down some of the proposals that are being talked about.
The first one I'm going to talk about is one that actually could work in some worlds of America. That is, reparations. Simply put, the government paying out money either in forms of social programs or in a UBI-like manner to people who are victims of racism that has happened in the past. Let's look at our three-point checklist that we talked about before. Is this something that can be put into law? Yes. Is this something that would address the problem at hand? Absolutely. It actually addresses the problem at hand in the most straightforward way possible. Can it have negative consequences that may overwhelm the benefit? Absolutely. Unfortunately, reparations is a policy that will create the perception of imbalance. People whose tax dollars are going towards this program will feel wronged for it, particularly if they're people such as immigrants who do not have deep roots in America, who never benefited from some of that racism in the first place. One way to work around this that I would suggest is for this to be done not by the government, but by a third party. There are already existing infrastructures for cash support, especially during this time of COVID-19. This includes Andrew Yang's nonprofit Humanity Forward, which essentially sends money to people who are in poor economic circumstances due to COVID-19 through a direct payment method of their choice. A similar infrastructure, accepting donations and reinvesting it into African American communities, can be incredibly successful. And it can actually play on a lot of the politics of today, where people are very willing to contribute their money to various causes. In my opinion, this will be by far the quickest way to actually have a situation of reparations going forward, and in a way that's actually the most constructive in creating those solutions. Of course, there may be pressure on various companies, celebrities, or other wealthy people to actually put money towards it. But in the end, it's a voluntary choice. It's something that can be universally proposed to people and create a mindset where you're contributing to a solution, not fighting against an enemy. Let's let the cat out of the bag. Representation has been a complete and utter failure for almost all African Americans. The idea behind representation is that if you have selective policies that have an advantage to African Americans or look for a specific number of African Americans for prominent positions, such as well-known universities, board members, roles in the media, etc., then you're going to have a trickle-down effect where normal people get a benefit from these more elite institutions having more African Americans in them. I will give a caveat that if you work in a very specific industry and are part of a very top echelon of the elite in terms of wealth and connections, then you might have actually been able to benefit from representation. Of course, this includes celebrities, journalists, and politicians, who in one way or another all benefit from nepotism. I will say that it's understandable for a lot of these figures to come to the conclusion that representation may be beneficial, due to the, their experiences in their own nepotism-driven sectors. Of course, having less African Americans existing in some of these positions will mean that you'll have less insider connections to those people, which in turn means that you're going to have, once again, an even stronger version of the continuity effect, where because your industry is so driven by nepotism, by this type of soft corruption, that you're not going to be able to make inroads with those areas, even if you're someone who has made the right decisions. It can be argued that because of the extreme nepotism and corruption that happens in these industries, 
that representation might actually create a beneficial effect. That's because if you have a vast majority of people who are not African American, and joining that kind of industry, that kind of club, requires you to already have insider connections, then you're not going to make a significant inroad into those industries if you're African American. However, the idea of representation quickly falls apart when you get to the rest of the world. Let's take technology for example. The fundamental thing you have to understand about technological job markets is that there is not enough supply. Google essentially has a baseline for the lowest level of technical competence you need in order to work there. And if you pass that baseline, then you're in. Which means that if you're going to attempt to create any sort of change in racial disparity, you are going to have to increase the supply. You're going to have to make those educational reforms that I already talked about. And there's simply no other way to do it effectively. This means that calls for representation in the technology sector are simply impossible to fulfill because there are not the African Americans there to fill those roles. Everyone who passes the baseline is being hired. And to understand what the baseline is, it isn't some abstract signaling requirement like a degree. It's a hard, technical interview consisting of problem solving and computer science questions that you have to solve. You can search on Google for Google technical interview and you'll be able to get an example of some of these technical problems to solve. And trust me, the vast majority of people cannot do them. Let's take another example of how representation has failed. And in fact, this one is even more painful. And that's in university and college education. Of course, you might have heard of the Affirmative Action Program, which essentially lowers the requirements for university admission for some minority students, including African Americans. Now, why is this not beneficial? Once again, let's go through the three steps. Is it actionable? Well, yes it is. Does it actually address the problem at hand? In order to answer this question, we have to understand something fundamental about universities. Qualifying for one university is an opportunity to learn. Qualifying for a specific university is a signaling factor. A signaling factor is essentially something that shows some correlation to success without actually directly providing it. For example, someone who goes to Harvard isn't going to actually have that significant of an educational difference to someone who goes to, say, University of Texas. The difference that's made here is signaling. It's more difficult to get into Harvard, which means that qualifying for it gets you a higher level of signaling. That means when you have a preference for one group over these programs, you are giving them a signaling advantage. You are given access to higher positions because of this essentially meaningless symbol on your degree. Now, let's once again think about where this works. It works in highly nepotism-based industries. It works in media, it works in journalism, it works in politics. Once again, where does it not work? It does not work in technology. And in fact, it does not work in the vast majority of employments because they actually test your competence in solving the tasks. Now let's dive a little deeper into the signaling idea. The reason people think that Harvard degrees are so difficult is not actually because of the education, it's because of the circumstances of admission. Now what are you doing when you have affirmative action that tips the scales of admissions? It means that the signal that comes from an African American or another minority that benefits from affirmative action would be less than that of a white person or especially that of an Asian person who would be disadvantaged by affirmative action. 
Of course, having these biases based on race are a bad thing. You should absolutely avoid using them when making hiring decisions. It doesn't change the fact, however, that some people are going to end up having that association, especially when you actually write it into policy. If you write it into policy like this, then that means you're essentially making a false assumption true. Using this practice in order to address implicit bias, especially in terms of hiring, is the exact same reinforcement loop that we complain about when we talk about sending more police officers in to patrol African American communities. When you send more cops into minority communities, you're going to catch more crime and you're going to reinforce that stereotype. In the exact same way, you're going to be reinforcing the same ideas when you implement policies that tip the scales, that actually reduce those qualifications for signaling. In short, affirmative action is a policy that tends to work partially well for the elite, tends not to work at all for most other industries, and thirdly, tends to have an adverse effect that reinforces racism exactly where we're trying to remove it. The next batch of policies we're going to talk about vary in effectiveness, but they are generally unified by two factors. One, they're relatively low impact compared to the other things that we're talking about, and also two, they face a lot of opposition and they tend to be incredibly polarizing. This includes removing certain statues and monuments, removing holidays, and attacking American institutions. Let's break down each of these just for the sake of clarity. When removing statues, it can be argued that a lot of particularly confederate statues do cause a detrimental impact to the general understanding of slavery. However, especially when talking about union figures or founding fathers, the case to be made for the benefits is extremely small, and the amount of opposition it faces is incredibly high, from people who rightly see the founding fathers as part of their shared history, as part of the systems of government that we have now, and as people who are distinguished not by the practices that they shared with everyone else, some of which may have been detestable, but by the way that they differed and made change. While you can argue in a relatively convoluted way that any link from the past to the present would actually have a sort of cultural continuity, there is scarcely any evidence to back this up. Even if taking into consideration the best faith argument for some of these proposals, they're simply not even remotely in the ballpark of effectiveness as the other things that can be done. So why do we see these issues now taking the forefront of a lot of media discussion, even a lot of media discussion among people who are pro-Black Lives Matter? It would seem reasonable for some opposition of Black Lives Matter to try to mischaracterize it and try to connect it with either extremist identitarians or with these very adversarial politics proposals going against things that are very popular with the American public. Unfortunately, the reason is actually rather simple. The goals of a lot of people who are trying to co-opt Black Lives Matter is not to solve the issues of people on the ground. It's to build further political power and most importantly, political loyalty. This goes on to a fourth type of racism that I'm going to talk about, which applies solely in the world of politics. This is the racism of the captured demographic. In politics, there are usually two main types of demographics that are considered. The first is swing demographics, demographics that change from one party to another. They often see a lot of representation in media and in policy. 
You can think of Trump with working-class white voters. Trump did try to appeal to them by renegotiating trade deals with China and with Mexico and Canada. You can have your thoughts on whether that was successful or not, but we can all agree that he made an effort to appeal to them to at least appear to keep his promises. The same is true for Barack Obama with the Latino vote, where he signed in DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. You might argue that African Americans still have political power, as they have political power in the primary elections of each party, where the party selects their nominee for president. There is one factor that causes captured demographics, demographics that vote for one party overwhelmingly, to lose political power. This is the fact that presidents are very responsive to those swing voters in general elections, and much less responsive to those primary voters. Despite what promises a president makes, a party is almost always going to re-nominate them. There is generally high support for incumbent presidents within parties themselves, and most voters aren't willing to risk the chance of changing a nominee as the incumbent typically has an advantage. Because of this, regardless of whether a president actually fulfilled any promises to their captured demographics, they're generally going to get re-nominated. The opposite is true for swing demographics. Because swing demographics mainly vote in the general election, if they're dissatisfied with the incumbent president, they have the power to change from one party to another, possibly flipping the election. There's also a drastically higher number of one-term presidents who have not won re-election in the general, compared to almost no incumbent presidents not receiving their party's nomination again. How does adversarial politics play into this? Well, adversarial politics is the function that keeps captured demographics captured, that makes them more and more entrenched, and builds upon the network effect. The network effect is what happens when you have a large amount of people who interact with each other, who have one common feature. This is most often used to describe social media networks. When you have the network effect on social media, the more people a social media platform has, the more people are then interested in joining it because they have those interactions with pre-existing users. The same is actually true for political parties. If a vast amount of your demographic, either geographic, sex, orientation, or race, is part of one political party, then there's going to be an increasing network effect, increasing social pressure from your peers, to then vote for the party, to be more informed on those parties' perspectives, and to generally feel a greater sense of loyalty to that party. What makes this even stronger is adversarial politics, is using an us-versus-them dynamic in order to persuade your voters that simply voting for your own party to keep the opposition out is enough to create significant political change. The most important part of this, however, is that adversarial politics fundamentally promises nothing of substance. Nothing fundamentally changes when you win with only adversarial promises. There isn't even the expectation that you'll give anything to those communities. All that you have to do is win the election and prevent the enemy from gaining power. That's exactly the incentives that have led our political discourse to talking about statues, affirmative action, and fake nooses, instead of actually addressing the problems of regular people and protesters with actual, beneficial, and constructive solutions. What has made this even worse is a new devious tactic involving the prevalence of extremists trying to co-opt Black Lives Matter. I'm going to preface this, however, with a note that I believe 
that there are no real Machiavellian villains in the world of politics. It's often a fun thing to paint politicians as purely corrupt or evil, but that's simply not the world that we live in. Every evil political figure is a tragic hero. Our world is full of Othellos, not of Iagos. Even to the extent that both of the following people cause active harm to the African American community and to democracy as a whole, I don't want anyone to consider them a villain. I want my audience to treat them with the exact same caring hand, with the exact same constructive mindset that we should be using in order to diagnose our problems. Always leave room for your political opponents to agree with you, to, to change their mind, and to not be punished for doing so. Without further ado, let's venture onwards. The first of these figures that we're going to talk about I'm going to represent with the initials NHJ. Now, this person is mainly considered to be the architect of a lot of the adversarialism we see with the modern day political discourse on Black Lives Matter, specifically going after a lot of American institutions. She is given a disproportionate amount of publicity by a major newspaper, despite what many historians say is downright fictional, and what I best try to interpret as an honest misreading. Believe it or not, the second figure is actually on another level of egregiousness. I'm going to represent this figure with the initials RDA, and the thing with this figure is that in some alternate universe, the ideology that she proposes would be considered race realism. Of course, race realism is something that's used to describe racists. Before we actually get to what RDA proposes, we actually have to look at the things she presupposes, the things that she just takes for granted. The first is a tendency to racism that people have, particularly white people. While this is not new and has been supported by people with similar ideologies, this is not necessarily something that is either based in fact or is something that is beneficial to actually addressing people's problems. As I talked before with the three types of racism, there are very real problems that ordinary African Americans face on a day-to-day -day basis. There is a very real source of all of that anger. It is constructed in some part by the implicit bias of a subset of Americans. However, the vast amount of problems in those people's lives are fundamentally based in the problems of continuity. In fact, this is something that NHJ actually partially gets right. However, jumping back to NHJ for a moment, she completely misrepresents this continuity as something that's passed through culturally instead of something that's passed through simply as a function of statistics. I don't necessarily see NHJ as someone who is proposing things strictly based on fabrication or someone who is proposing things strictly based on misinformation. It's very easy when all you have is a hammer to treat everything as a nail. And that's exactly what she, in her archetypical political thinking, would seem to be doing in the case of addressing continuity racism. Returning to RDA, what she actually then goes on to propose in her book is kind of a continual anti-racism police state where people are engaged in an endless war of trying to root out racism where it occurs. This aggravated policing of people who should be her own countrymen and women is exactly the type of adversarial politics that would inspire further racism in the first place. Racism almost always is reactionary. Look throughout history and you'll see that this is the case. More often than not, minorities are used as scapegoats in order to drive political narratives. 
In this case, you see that the people who are pretending to be advocating for the minorities are the ones who are starting this war. A war that will inevitably only create more instances of racism and hurt the very people RDA pretends to be protecting. Once again, I have to resort to the three factors. Is it applicable? You are going to be able to implement those attacks on rooting out quote-unquote racism and over-punishing people, but you're not actually going to get the results that you want. Why? Having this adversarial politics is what those racists eventually then use to actually justify their actions. And if you want proof of this, look no further than the war on terror that I already mentioned. One of the best recruiting tools for extremists like ISIS is the mass denouncing of Islam by Western politicians. In fact, the way that the war on terror would actually be resolved, and this was sourced by someone working for the Canadian government in researching extremism, is that extremism ends when regular Muslims living in those areas actually reject the ideology. In other words, the more you fight the war on terror, the more you inspire escalating terrorist attacks in those countries. Inherent in the war on terror, and inherent in this endless war on racism that RDA proposes, is a fundamental assumption of despair. Unfortunately, what RDA does is tell African Americans to give up. So why has the underlying ideology that's propelled RDA, the ideology that's given up on progress, become more and more prominent in our political culture? Once again, this goes back to the political structure and it goes back to captured demographics. For political incumbents, the ideal is to have a voter base that is simultaneously angry and hopeless. By having a voter base that essentially is only emotionally driven, is fully attached to a political party without any source of responsibility from that political party back to the demographic, you have a voter base that can never be swayed. This means that there's no accountability, and that there's always going to be an amount of voters that you can essentially write off, that you don't have to spend any ideological capital or financial capital in appealing to. If this sounds like the subset of Trump voters that are absolute lunatics, you're right. This type of ideology that rejects the very real solutions that we talked about already. This ideology is fundamentally based on constructing that type of captured demographic. It's fundamentally based in political power, and this political power is directly opposed to the strength of the Black Lives Matter movement. You see, a populist political movement, a grassroots political movement led by people who are actually on the ground protesting, is something that transcends this ideology. It's something that transcends political branding to become something of its own. This was something that I could have created a full episode on, the life and the death of political movements. But I'm going to do my best to summarize it here. Historical evidence, including from the civil rights era, shows that political movements either end in one of two ways. They either become an inherent part of the culture, something that's understood by all people universally, and something that makes significant progress on the actual issues, or it becomes something that gets co-opted, that gets used as a political tool to reinforce a pre-existing structure of political power. Initially, I had strong hope that Black Lives Matter would be the first. By now, only a few weeks later, it seems almost certain that it will end up being the latter. So in this last section, I'm going to lay out the game plan for Black Lives Matter, 
and give my best honest strategic advice. The first consideration that we have to talk about is one that's been proposed by a lot of notable black figures, including most recently Robert L. Johnson, the founder of Black Entertainment Television, or BET, and also the first African-American billionaire. He proposed that a Black Lives Matter party be formed, independent of the Democratic Party. This would be a very policy-based party, dedicated to addressing the actual issues that African-Americans face. Instead of being wrapped in ideology, it would be something wrapped in the everyday struggles of African-American people. This is a powerful political force, however, there's only one real way it would find dominance. That would be a future scenario where neither the Republicans or the Democrats have enough political influence to win a majority. In this case, the Black Lives Matter party would essentially play kingmaker, with its House delegates essentially controlling the power balance between the two parties. There is strong evidence that this actually works in many other systems of government including parliamentary systems such as that in Canada and in the United Kingdom. Of course, in Canada, there is a strong political movement out of Quebec representation, which is the French-speaking province of Canada, and you can see a similar movement in the United Kingdom with Scotland. However, because of the United States partisan media and first-past-the-post electoral structure, there tends to be a lot of problematic consequences with a third-party run. One of this is the so-called spoiler effect. The effect that a third party will generally take more votes away from the party that would have been more favorable to it. However, if this state of rhetoric, if this state of creating an entrenched and increasingly angry and hopeless captured demographic continues, I think that there's a strong case for a Black Lives Matter party. It can also be noted that in recent times, that the Republicans were also willing to offer up the same types of breadcrumbs that the Democratic Party is offering up. Minor police reforms, some changing of language, and also making Juneteenth a holiday. If the Democratic Party is unwilling to address those fundamental issues of continuity, this is very much a possibility in the future. For the current election, and probably for the next one or two elections to come, this is probably out of the picture. However, the most important thing to understand about populist movements is that they don't need to actually hold political power in order to wield their influence. The most powerful tool of populist movements is the fact that they come from outside of an established political force. More Black Lives Matter protesters may be from the Democratic Party, but they fundamentally are not advocating for the same things. They're not advocating for the status quo, and they don't all align even within the organization themselves. The populist movement is a miasma, it's a collection of various different views, which gives it a unique appeal to the American public. It shows that Black Lives Matter is fundamentally not about political power. It's about changing hearts and minds. It's the ultimate force that actually is willing to accept more people into the coalition. That's why you can see the civil rights movement making significant progress over time, for example. With that in mind, the most important thing that Black Lives Matter activists can continue to do is to avoid the co-opting of their movement by increasingly malicious political actors. What they have to do is continue to get out on the street, continue to be advocating for the exact same things that they started with. Remember, there are very real problems that African Americans face on the ground. The very fact that there are extremists who are trying to co-opt this does not change the reality. The problem with this theory is that it does the exact same thing as what fascism does. It identifies the problem and then misdirects all the people off a cliff. 
It gets them to be angry about a non-factor instead of focusing on the very real problems in their everyday lives, instead of focusing on the policies that I already talked about, including economic desegregation of schools, police reform, reparations done through a non-profit, all these ideas that would be incredibly popular with the public and would create real substantive change in their lives. That's what a populist movement represents. And while there may not be immediate political effects, the greatest thing about political movements is to have length over strength. Black Lives Matter has to continue protesting, continue being on the street, continue advocating for real change for those economic policies that I proposed before, even for further economic reform that would create a bigger tent while also benefiting Black Lives Matter themselves. It is the movement of the civil rights era. It is the movement that has been so successful in American history. It's the movement that has brought rights to more and more people and has been the tide of overcoming our past racism. Black Lives Matter is being heard day to day. With every moment people are generally protesting, with every heart and mind that's been swayed by interacting with those ordinary people on the ground, we are closer to those constructive policies. If we let Black Lives Matter become something that it's not, something that the ordinary people do not stand to benefit from, then we lose everything. I'm not going to be taking donations for this podcast. Instead, redirect your money to organizations that are fighting for people on the ground, including Campaign Zero or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, among others. If you want to support the podcast, just hit share. Subscribe to the podcast, especially if you want more political insight in our rapidly evolving time.